and one storyteller has stayed with me. Donald Cabana spoke to SNAP's Anna Sussman about his time employed at Mississippi State Penitentiary. This piece does touch on some dark topics. As such, listener discretion is advised. One of my earliest jobs, I was a, a corrections officer at the State Penitentiary at Parchment in Mississippi. Spent 12 hours a day on a horse out in the middle of the cotton fields. Um, the inmates worked. Um, the work was brutal. Uh, corporal punishment was the order of the day. What fascinated me most, however, about Parchman was the trusty shooter system, uh, where inmates, selected inmates, carried guns and guarded the other inmates on what we called the long lines that worked out uh, picking cotton or vegetables or whatever. Everything was done by hand. It was at one point in time known as perhaps the most dangerous prison in America. I saw myself as a reformer and um, I very foolishly and naively criticized in a newspaper interview uh, one day the fact that um, the prison had been through six superintendents in less than a year and a half. And so I was critical of the governor for that. I was summoned to the superintendent's office and I was summarily dismissed and told to go clean out my office and that I would be escorted off the grounds by a, a state trooper. Uh, we get out the front gate and I said, uh, you see that sign up there over the gate? And he said, yeah where it says superintendent. I said, I'm going to come back here as the warden one of these days or superintendent, and my name's going to be up there. It was 15 years later. The day that I arrived at Parchment as warden, my reputation as the warden there was that I was one tough SOB. I ran a tough prison. I, I knew that um, at some point in my career, I would probably be faced with that task of executing somebody. The, the method at that time was the gas chamber. I don't think any, any person who takes on a warden's job, they better do it with their eyes wide open. You go into it understanding that this may be part of my job. And if I'm not willing to do this particular part of my job, however infrequent it might be, then I shouldn't take the job in the first place. Edward Earl Johnson was the first execution that I uh, actually presided over. Uh, he was executed for killing a town marshal about uh, three months after he graduated from high school. Um, shortly before the execution, the weekend before, we were having Sunday dinner. I told my wife, and... Um, she looked at me and she said, are you ready for this? And I almost uh, flippantly, nonchalantly said, hell, I've spent 20 years in my career being ready for this moment. Combat in Vietnam. And she said, I think you're going to find that those are two very different 
experiences. I said, well, maybe so. But look, it goes with the territory. And if I'm not willing to do it, I don't deserve the job, and I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. He was an interesting guy. I, it, most inmates, you know, on death row are going to tell you they're innocent. But usually, when you get right down to it's time to do the deed, the inmate will come around. He may not just come right out and say, okay, I did it. But they might say, uh, would you tell my family I'm sorry for the pain I caused them? Uh, please apologize to the victim's family. Well, you know, you're not going to do that if, if you didn't do something. But in his case, um, at the point in time that I finished reading the death warrant, when it was time to ask him if he had any final words, he is strapped into the chair inside the gas chamber. I leaned down and and I just kind of whispered to him and said, Edward, it's not important that anybody in this room hears you say, I'm guilty, I did it. But what is important is that you're at peace with your God before I have to give the order to do this. And um, I thought to myself at that moment, hey, that's pretty strong stuff. That's pretty good stuff. Um, he looked at me and said, Warden, I'm at peace with my God. How are you going to be with yours? I'm innocent. And those were his last words, I'm innocent. By the time we finished the press conference, it was about... 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we started walking back to the house. By that time, things had started to kind of set in a little bit, the reality. I came back and um, told my wife. She said, how was it? I said, it was horrendous. It takes too long. It's potentially extremely excruciatingly painful we're supposed to be better than they are while I was doing this everybody else in Mississippi uh, is, is asleep and and I've been busy doing their dirty work for them I climbed in the shower and I scrubbed and I scrubbed and I scrubbed because I felt dirty. I said, uh, if I never have to do it again, I won't be sorry. One's enough for me. I don't know how folks in Texas do it. Six weeks later, it got worse because I, I did my second execution. Only in this case, um, the, the guy, interestingly, never denied his guilt. Connie Ray Evans. The problem was that I had become extremely close to him. Um, that happens sometimes. It's inexplicable. Um, it breaks every uh, rule that wardens have about don't get close to the cons. The line between the keepers and the kept is a thin one because he's a human being. And that's what 
we're not supposed to lose sight of in this business. And my wife used to warn me, that guy's going to burn you. And I said, look, out of all the inmates on death row, Connie's the best behaved, never causes any problems. He's as quiet as a church man. She said, I'm not talking about him escaping or hurting anybody. He's going to burn you. He sends you birthday cards. You go down there and you play checkers with him. He's gotten under your skin. You're, you're much too close to him for your own good. What's going to happen if his time comes while you're the warden? And lo and behold, two weeks later, the attorney general and the governor called and said, we're going to have another execution in 30 days. And I said, um, okay, who is it? And, and they said, let's see, a guy by the name of Connie Ray Evans. And I was just stunned. You know, three hours before his execution, I was sitting alone in my office. And I went through his prison file, which I'd been through a hundred times. And I found something I had just never noticed before. And it was stuck on the back side of a piece of paper. And it was a picture of him in the third grade. We've all had those. Miss Kelsey's third grade grammar school picture. And I stared at it and, and I thought, you know, he looks like the nine-year-old next door, the nine-year-old kid across the street. He looks like my nine-year-old kid. Even though I'd not forgotten what he was there for, when I would read his record and read the, the details of the crime, I would try to envision him doing what that record said he did. And the inmate that I dealt with on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis, it was difficult to envision that. It was a moment of stupidity caused by drugs or alcohol or whatever. I had uh, instituted very liberal visitation policies for uh, prisoners facing execution. Uh, his mother, when I had to tell her it was time for the visit to be over, she, she, uh, I went outside the building to smoke a cigarette, and she came outside and she came up to me and she put her hand on my arm and she thanked me, and she said, I know you have children. Please don't kill my child. And um, those words rang in my ears. Um, I went back to my house that evening, and um, uh, I just wanted to hug my kids and not let them go. The night of the execution, when it was time to, to walk the mile, I went to his cell. We, we went to his cell to, to tell him it was time to go. And um, Connie was very popular with the other inmates. He was popular with the staff. So we started walking him down the row. And the inmates, as we passed their cells, one by one, started saying goodbye to him. And um, the officers who worked on the row I had allowed them to come in, and those officers had all gathered up at the end of the block by his cell. And they were all standing here with these big burly guys, you know, with tears in their eyes. And about halfway down the row, somebody, one of the inmates, started very 
softly singing Amazing Grace. And by the time we got to the end of the road to go into the last night room next to the chamber, uh, the entire cell block was singing. I remember thinking uh, as we were walking down uh, the tier on death row with him, I wonder if his knees are buckling because mine are. This is, this is tough. You know, it was the, the 30 minutes or so in, in the last night room was really awkward. We talked about mundane things. Um, I found myself saying really awkward things to him like, uh, we're going to go through this together. I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Knowing it, well, not exactly every step of the way because I'm not strapping my butt into that chair. We got him into the gas chamber and, and we were strapping him into the chair and I read the death warrant and when I asked him if he had anything to say, he said, I want to tell you something privately. I just want you to know that I love you. To be honest with you, I think for an instant I wanted to tear up, but hell, I'm the warden. And I've got a team of employees that are expecting me to be a leader. And uh, you don't do that if you're out there boohooing about executing somebody that murdered another human being, no matter how much you might have liked him personally. We were closing the chamber door. Uh, he, he said, wait a minute, Warden, I have one more question. And I stepped back in and he said, uh, how do I do this? And I said, look, you're going to be able to see me uh, through the glass. When the gas begins to rise up, you look at me and I'll nod my head and you take a couple of deep breaths and I promise you, it's going to be over very quickly. Which, of course, was not true. Uh, when, the phone, when the red phone rang, of course, he heard it. And it's almost, uh, I reached out, the deputy warden handed it to me. Uh, but I never took my eyes off him. We were fixated on each other. And I, and I took the governor's call. And I just looked at him and shook my head. I realized uh, about a minute and a half into it, I looked at the doctor and I, and I said, uh, Jesus, he's holding his breath. He, of course, he couldn't hear me through the glass, but I said, breathe, damn it, breathe. And he was still holding his breath about two and a half minutes into it, and I, and I kind of banged my fist on the glass and said, breathe. Um, it took about four and a half minutes before he lapsed into unconsciousness. I found myself standing there wondering how we both got there. How had our lives come together under those circumstances? I went home and I told my wife, uh, 
Okay, you were right. Uh, I shouldn't have got close to him. And um, I told her what he said. And uh, she began to cry a little bit, and she said, but you're wrong about something. And I said, what? Um, she said, you will come to treasure the fact that you knew him the way you did. And you'll treasure for the rest of your life what he said to you. I do. I was reflecting on a dinner conversation with my children one night. And uh, my oldest daughter um, all of a sudden just said, do you worry about being forgiven? I did struggle very privately from time to time with the issue of um, my judgment. Last year, all of a sudden, uh, I went into congestive heart failure and it caused my kidneys to fail and, and it got real complicated and touchy for a while. And I just remember uh, laying there praying the rosary thinking, uh, I want to make sure I've covered as many of the bases as possible in terms of seeking forgiveness and redemption. Uh, the executions were part of my conversation with, with, um, with my God. I remember, you know, my priest was standing there with me, and I'm praying. And I'm thinking to myself, um, you know, we're not different from some inmate on death row. Since this piece originally aired on Snap Judgment, Donald Cabana has passed away, and I want his family to know how much his openness touched us and how much his story haunts. This piece was produced by Anna Sussman.